Hello, and welcome to Israel War Briefing, a new weekly podcast from the Jewish Chronicle, offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. Each week, I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. This episode is sponsored by UJIA. Uh, today, I'm joined by Fleur Hassan Nahum, the Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem and the Special Envoy for the Foreign Ministry. Uh, it's the 7th of November, which is the 30th day of the war. So it's the end of Shloshim in the Jewish tradition. So Fleur, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, so Fleur, if you can just start by just painting a picture of what it's been like uh, for over the last 30 days. And that's a big question because it's been a huge, um, a huge episode in Israel's history. But I know you've gone down to the south recently and seen the scenes for yourself. So just paint a picture yeah. of your impressions of what everything's been like. Well, I I, I don't want to uh, overstate, but I honestly think that um, there, there will be life what life was like before October the 7th and life after October the 7th and I'm not quite sure it's going to be the same again and I don't like comparing things to the Holocaust because we have no idea the magnitude of the Holocaust is something that most of us can't fathom but I think we've gotten a taster just a taster because the, the, the brutality of the attacks was something we never thought we'd see in Israeli soil this is the reason we have a country so that nobody could ever do that to us the shock and trauma and depression of the first two days, I kept waking up thinking and praying that it had all been a nightmare and that for some reason I, I was in this, stuck in this terrible nightmare. And I think me with the most country, and I think all Jews around the world also, it just took us a few days to actually fathom what, what had happened and, and how it had happened. And in the first instant, on that first Saturday, we, we didn't realize the situation was so bad. You know, we've had rockets down south. Unfortunately, it's a reality that we've all learned to live with. And not me from Jerusalem, but the people down south have learned to live with it. Um, and so I think the country's gone from shock, trauma, deep sadness and depression to um, dis- defiance, resilience, and action. And what's really, I guess, impressive about the whole thing is that civil society has come together in a way that shows us the strength of Israel Israel and the Jewish people, because we have people from all around the world helping us. But the civil society in this country is so strong that I I don't want to exaggerate by saying they're running the country right now. When everything else is slow and bureaucratic and failing and political, the civil society are doing the work. And I can just give you an example. We'll go back to the South in a second. Jerusalem has become a city of refuge. It's civil society running the show. It's not the welfare ministry they're involved, but they're just catching up. That same Saturday, there were people going into action. And it's been nonstop. And the only way that we're coping over here, because otherwise I think I'd be, you know, ready for a lunatic asylum, is, is that we're all in action 24 seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to give a shout out here to the good, the, you know, the UJ from, from Britain who have done a fantastic job in raising money 
and doing work for the evacuees, for trauma, food, basic supplies. You know, they're, they're there right with us. Uh, well, you, are, you, Jay, are actually sponsoring this particular episode. So, um, well, I'm, I, I didn't even know that. And I'm very happy better. to give them a shout out because because my, my friends are working, my friends with the UJ, Emily Payton. Also, her husband, Richard, who works for um, Bicom, they, they've been doing wonderful work. And, yeah. and Emily uh, specifically has been doing all the relief. Uh, and you um, you went down south to some of the kibbutzim, didn't you, over the past few days? We went, yes. Yeah. So uh, I think it was almost two weeks ago. I'm going back down on Thursday. But two weeks ago, we went to Kibbutz Berry with the foreign minister. He organized a team of his, you know, the people that are in his foreign ministry who are basically facing the world. Um, and I can't, I can't really describe the feeling because it felt almost like a set of a horror movie, but it was real. So we, destruction, first of all, destruction all around. And I'm thinking, what is this destruction for? Did people throw rockets? No, it wasn't. For, some of it was from rockets, but some of it was, most of it was from grenades being thrown in people's houses where people were in there. Um, People, uh, the, the terrorists burning tires and throwing them into households. So eventually it, things explode. And we went into a house where there was blood on the floor, knives and and just burnt. So they'd tortured these people, they'd, they'd stab them, they'd cut them, and then they'd burnt them alive. And you walk around and you see, you see a house that went 19 people died in this one house amongst them seven children. 19 people in one house, big houses. This was a peaceful kibbutz. This was a kibbutz that used to have people who would take Gazans to hospitals because they were good people. These are the type of communities where Gazans were given work permits to work in. And instead of, of, of being grateful for the gift that Israel had given them, instead of the, the nothing that their genocidal government has given them, they used those opportunities to gather intelligence to go and attack those very people that were giving them livelihoods. I mean... It just beggars belief. Um, we saw people's bedrooms, just, you know, kids' books on the floor. It was, I, I can't describe it. I it, I think, you know, you know me, Jake, I, and I am somebody who talks a lot. I couldn't talk for 10 hours. I couldn't say a word. I, will, I was in shock after that. What was the atmosphere like there? It was, it was eerie. It was... It was, I don't know, it's, it's like a, something like, you know that feeling you get when you leave Auschwitz, like something really horrible happened here, but you can't quite, that's how it felt like. It, it felt like something like that. Like, 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 I can't believe this happened here. It's like, it's like a horror movie. And, and we're here looking at the destruction of what a month ago was a peaceful, pastoral little kibbutz with beautiful houses and gardens. And, you know, and they were telling us that that day, there was a plan in the kibbutz because you know it was only a thousand people that they were building kites. They were gonna, they were gonna, they were gonna make kites so that they could show the guards and children, hey, here we're all the same. That's what they were planning to do that day. Can you believe it? Do you feel that? I mean, obviously, people in Israel feel this much more than people outside. But do you feel that having gone there and come back, it changed you? I think this whole thing's changed me. Like, I really don't think, I, I think that this is the worst thing we are going to have gone through as a people. 
as a country. And I've been here for quite a number of wars. And you have to remember, I moved to Israel from London in March 2001, which was the middle of the second intifada where buses were blowing up in Jerusalem, here where I was living. And cafes, I heard one of the cafes blow up because I live in Bakken. This was a German colony. And still this is worse. I don't understand. I've been through four Gaza wars, one Lebanon war, a horrible intifada, an uprising a few years ago where they called for a bit the knife intifada where people were knifing people down in the streets of Jerusalem. And this is worse than all of it together. I can't explain. I think it's the depravity in the brutality. I think it's, well, the open wound of, of our hostages that are still there. And it's a living nightmare of torture every single day, not just for the 240 uh, you know, families, the 240 people, some of them the same family, not only for those families, but the whole country see their children in those hostages, the whole country. And this is a very small country. We all know somebody. We all know somebody. We're bearing, we're bearing 19, 20-year-old soldiers. We all know somebody. We're all going to shivers. We're all going to funerals. It's unbearable. The agony is unbearable. And the only way that I'm personally coping it is just being busy the whole time. Because if well, I stop to think, I'm going to collapse into a depression that I don't know where I'm going to get out of it. Well, I mean, let's talk about about that because there was some polling that came out a couple of weeks ago, which showed that or suggested that Israelis were actually more optimistic about the country and, the, and its future than they were before. And the, amongst the Arab minority, the level of optimism stayed the same, but amongst the Jewish majority, it had gone up about the future of the country. Well. Jake, I think you know better than anyone because you've been reporting on it for, for a while now that we were in a terrible state of disunity. Um, Israel was really, we were separating into camps and it was ugly. And I'm a moderate, you know, I'm centre-right, but I'm a moderate. I've got friends of every stream and every colour and we have a civil conversations. Um, and when you think about what we were fighting about on Yom Kippur, we were fighting about a mechitza a separation between men and women in the public space in Tel Aviv. Shame on us. Shame on us. On the most solemn day of the year, we were fighting over putting a separation for men and women in the middle of the square in Tel Aviv. I'm not blaming any sides. I'm blaming all sides. I really am. Everybody contributed to where we got to as a people. And so the optimism, I think, comes from two places. One is uh, that we've shown our enemies that even though we could be tearing each other apart, when we have that type of threat to the existence of our people, we band together. And the second thing is that I think the way civil society has mobilized with people from all spectrum um, shows us that what we, what I knew, but some people had forgotten, that there's so much more that unites us. And that's what we really have to focus on. And so tell me a bit more about the home front effort. I know Jerusalem has been yeah. a, key, a key part of that and, and you're right at the heart of it yourself. Yeah, well, as I as I said, you know, it, it seems ironic uh, that in the atmosphere that I got here in 2001, that Jerusalem is now a city of refuge in the sense that we don't get a lot of rockets here for two reasons. We're a bit further away, of course, because we're in, uh, all the way in the east. Um, and secondly is because the... Um, the, the, I guess Hamas are worried that if they lob too many rockets in Jerusalem, 
one of them could fall on the Al-Aqsa Mosque and then they wouldn't be very popular in the Arab world. Um, and, and also because we have a 40% Muslim population. So they're careful. Having said that, last week, uh, they lobbed a rocket and it landed in Bethlehem, which is 90% Muslim Arab. And so um, that shows they really don't care. They, they also threw another rocket to Jerusalem, which landed uh, near a mosque in Abu Ghosh, which is a, a small city. But they, but they also massacred many, many Arabs when they... Yes, came they killed the 20, 30 Arabs. We believe they have some And they Muslims knew they were Muslims. They knew they were Muslims. They, they don't care. They, they're happy for their own people to die. You heard uh, Khalid Mashal yesterday, who said that, you know, uh, you know, many civilizations have sacrificed millions. He's saying that from his Ritz Hotel in Qatar, um, you know, die for the cause, but like him and his family are well out of it. Yeah. So, yeah, we know the cynicism of these uh, genocidal terrorists. Um, so the home front involves essentially, we've now taken over 70 hotels that are now hotels for the um, evacuees. And what we're trying to do, which is really important, is to keep them as communities because people need to be with people who have experience what they've experienced children have to be with children who are their friends and so in some of the schools we've made some makeshifts in some of the hotels we've, we've opened up makeshift schools um the mayor has basically opened any Jerusalem school available for anybody who wants to put their kids in a proper school so you just have to show up with your id card and you can sign up any way you want um we are helping in certain, we're trying to raise money for it, but this trauma relief, we're, we're trying to bring as much of it as possible because honestly, the resilience, is, it's wearing thin. Um, this is something so brutal that we've never really experienced before, even in the wars that we've had. And so we need to make sure that the people who need a psychotrauma help are getting it. Um, and we've opened up this amazing uh, social, uh, civil society, social center for the evacuees. It has like a massive shop that you just go in and get whatever you want for free. Uh, clothing, books, uh, hygiene products, anything you want. They don't have to pay for anything. Nappies, baby formula. Uh, we've got thousands, thousands of volunteers doing anything from babysitting for children whose fathers have gone to the to, to fight in the front and the mothers are on their own and nervous. Um, anything you can think of. And I myself, as uh, you kindly reported last week, um, I'm leading a program to essentially get people with holiday apartments in Jerusalem to open up their homes um, to families of evacuees. And we've, you know, we've placed tens of people already and people are being very generous. Um, and so um, what's really beautiful is that everybody is involved in doing something. Even my 17 year old daughter has opened up uh, her own little, with her and her friends from B'nai Kiva have opened up a social center and they've gathered you know, equipment and help and everybody from 12-year-old children to 90-year-old uh, elderly are helping, are involved in something. And that is something so special that you only really see here. And now a quick word from our sponsors. My name is Emily Pater and I am UJIA's director in Israel. It's been a month since the horrific events of October the 7th. And as Israelis are beginning to emerge from the shock and the disbelief of that tragic day, we are well aware of the needs that continue to emerge. Since the beginning of this war, UJIA has been supporting trauma relief and interventions for Israelis who have been most directly affected. But as the weeks go by, 
we are learning of more people in need. Our ability to help them is based on our ability to raise funds to meet this critical need. Please go on to UJIA.org today and make a gift of whatever level that will help us provide mental health support and trauma relief for Israelis in need. Now, the, um, the implication of this is that there's a lot of people who aren't working in the economy. Yeah. Not only are all the most productive members of the economy out fighting uh, yeah. or, 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 or on service, but yeah. the economy must have ground to a halt almost, almost completely. What does that mean for Israel? How long can Israel do that? And what will the long-term implications be, do you think? Well... I mean, it was already, it was already, I mean, the world was already going through a mini recession, I would say, or um, a I mean, had COVID. We had COVID when everything closed down as well. We, yeah, but but even in the year of COVID, Israel went to 7% growth of our economy. Our economy is like a behemoth. Um, we have big problems. We've got manpower problems at the moment, not just in high tech. I mean, people from high tech can work from home. People in high tech, you can, you know, you can outsource things, but farmers in the south all of my children's friends my i've got i've got two kids in the army but but the, the, their friends the ones who haven't recruited yet or they've all gone to pick apples and oranges down south because all of the foreign workers the thailandese or and and the people who've been traumatized and have left the south um there's no manpower to pick fruits so so that's where people are very concerned this morning i was on israeli tv and the guy next to me is the head of the Milkers Association. Yes, we milk cows here. And again, he tells me he can't just have any volunteer because you need to actually know how to milk a cow. And so they're having problems also trying to find volunteers who can learn quickly or have some farming experience. Et so there is an immediate need for this type of work. I'm actually more optimistic about our innovation ecosystem because I think that's pretty resilient. And remember that our innovation you ecosystem- tech. You mean high tech? Yes, yeah. yes, high tech. Because look, our, our innovation high tech ecosystem was born out of military technology. That's really one of the main accelerators of the startup nation was the fact that our military technology was you know, second to none. And so this just really strengthens our resilience in that type of work. Um, I'm sure that people have manpower problems from all these amazing uh, women and men who are on reserve duty right now. But I'm less worried about them. And the immediate concern is this kind of the farmers down south. And now, of course, we've got the problem with the north. We don't know what's going to happen there. That's hotting up. Um, we get where my man died two days ago from a rocket in, in Matula. We are, you know, we are really preparing for a war with Hezbollah as well as fighting a war with Hamas. So this is this multifrontal war that has started in the most brutal of ways is something that I don't that I think we're we're going to we're going to be living with. And of course the open trauma and wound of the hostages. But you feel that the economy uh will be able to endure? I think that yes. I'm not I'm not I, I mean I think the government has to kick into action. Um, honestly, they really need to. They, they announced three days ago compensation for self-employed people, which, you know, they should because people who own little cafes, then nobody's going anywhere. We're like in mourning. 
Um, so they have announced a compensation package similar to what happened in COVID. Um, the government, as everywhere, moves slowly, and I'm hoping there'll be more compensation packages to come. And maybe there could be a way that we could bring more foreign workers in. Israel has never been good and nimble about bringing in foreign workers. And, uh, and I think this is the moment that we should start considering opening ourselves up a little bit uh, to outside help. If they're willing to come, I, I, but I know that that in Israel the the, the debt to GDP ratio has been quite good, I mean, certainly by comparison to Western countries. So there is some headroom there. Um, uh, yeah. But I think that ultimately, I was thinking I was in Israel just a few um, about eight weeks before October the seventh with my kids on holiday, and yeah. my da- one of my daughters was her first time there, and she was so uh, inspired by being there. And she came away, I remember her, the, the way that she put it, she's 14, the way that she put it was, it feels like in Israel, people have a reason to be there. Well, I want to say that I want to relate to your daughter, because the first time I went to Israel was when I was 14. Okay. And I came back, and I came back feeling exactly the same way. Life in Israel is life with meaning and purpose. Our purpose is not what's the latest fashion, or where am I getting my nails done? We do that as well. But that's not what gets us up in the morning. And, and I'm very grateful that, that I raised my kids here because, well, they were born here, but because, you know, it, just, just so you understand the culture here, you can't graduate high school unless you've done 250 volunteer hours. You can't graduate high school. They won't give you your A-levels equivalent unless you've done, and you've, you've shown a certificate. You have to do it with a recognized body and a recognized... And then after you've done with that, you go either to the army or to national service, or you go on a gap year, which is also volunteering, and then you go to the army national service. So giving, so being less self-centered, especially in this generation, which is all the I generation, it's all about me. I think Israel is still a, a bastion, an island of a giving society where I'm not the most important thing in the center of my world. And I think for kids who can think a little deeper, like obviously your daughter can, and see beyond uh, herself, I think Israel is that place where there is meaning because meaning is about giving. And Israel is a country that structurally is about giving. And that's actually borne out in in all the, the statistics. I mean, it's Israel was named by the UN, not known to be a friend of Israel, as we've seen recently. Yeah as the fourth yeah. happiest country in the world behind yeah. Iceland, Sweden and Norway, I think. And Israel's, I mean, the number of death suicides and deaths of despair from drugs are very, very low. The, the, the amount of um, teenage depression is very, very low. The, the, and the number of young of, of kids, of, of, of a number of kids people are having is is high, not just amongst the Haredim, but also amongst oh, the everyone. across the Absolutely. Society. So it's a very and, and optimistic think, place, despite it all. Is, it is optimistic, and I talk about this a lot. And I think it's two reasons. One is what we just spoke about, what your daughter alluded to, purpose, meaning. But the second thing is that we're very family-oriented society. In other words, the biggest plague now in the West is loneliness, isolation. You can't get a spare minute here. Somebody's always on top of you. Now, you know, my husband, he says, oh, I get up in the morning at five and I'm alone for an hour. That's a good thing for him. Because in Israel, you don't have space from your family, from your kids, from your parents, from your grandparents. It is is a vibrant society because everybody's very intertwined to each other's lives. We have family, we have community. That's why we're happier. Because we have not just 
purpose, but we have people around us constantly. We have family, we have family obligations. And again, this takes us out of ourselves. And that's so important. And we will still continue to be the fourth happiest country, but we're deeply, deeply in pain right now. I, I can't tell you, I can't describe what a stone in my heart, me and the whole country has on top of us. I can't, it's difficult to describe. Well, let's contrast this then to how the world views Israel. I know that you've um, you spent a lot of time in your in your role at the moment talking to foreign press and foreign media, yeah. Um, yeah. and we've seen demonstrations, including in London, all over the world, hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating against the apparently genocidal um, campaign in Gaza. So, what what are your experiences and thoughts and reflections on on that? Well, I. I have a lot of thoughts on that because I've been fighting in the media. You know, the the first Saturday, and, I, and I'm Sabbath observant, but when I realized that something really bad was happening, so I switched on my phone, um, and I realized what was happening, and I actually saw live a lot of the families who called the police, called the army. Nobody was coming, and they called the, the, the TV, and they were reporting live. They're, you know, they were saying, there's terrorists outside my house. They're going to come in. I'm here with the kids. It was horrible. We, we watched the whole thing live, and... And from the first moment that I understood that something really, really horrible was happening, um, my phone started blowing up, BBC, Sky News. And I understood that, well, if they were calling me, I'm, I'm not the official government spokesperson. Um, I'm, the, I'm the Jerusalem spokesperson, essentially, because of my role in Jerusalem. And I always have been. And that's why the BBC, I guess, has my number. But when they were calling me, I realized that obviously the army spokesperson wasn't answering the phone and the prime minister's office spokespeople weren't answering the phone and nobody was answering the phone. And I saw it and I said, well, I have to start talking. And that's how the whole thing started. And I knew that the sympathy would wane. The first few interviews were very, very sympathetic. That was when, you know, it was the beginning of, of, of the understanding that it was a massacre, an ongoing massacre. And I knew we had that had a shelf life. And so, you know, as, as it turned out, I was right, unfortunately. And three, four days later, the rhetoric started to change. And it wasn't about us having been massacred and fighting an existential war of self-defense, essentially. It was about us committing genocide um, and the misconceptions and just the plain ignorance of people. I have to explain to journalists that we left Gaza in 2005 most of them were still talking about a Gaza occupation. So then when I explained that to them, they're like, oh, what about the blockade? I said, well, if this is happening with all the weaponry they have and the five, 300 miles of tunnels they have with a sea blockade, what on earth would have happened if we would have left the open seas? People have no idea what they're talking about. And also they have no idea who Hamas is. And so, you know, I, I, from Sunday, I was already saying Hamas is ISIS. And, and this idea that, and the idea that Gaza is an open air prison. I mean, Israel's been allowing thousands ridiculous. of into work, as you mentioned. Twenty thousand permits in the last three months. And listen to this. First of all, we also take kids, take them to hospitals. There, there was a woman. The irony. There was a woman from Barry, where I visited, who used to wait at the border and take kids to hospitals. That's how peace loving the people from Barry were, which makes this all so much more painful. But more than that. 250,000 Gazans have left Gaza in the last 12 years. What prison are you talking about? Not, not even mentioning the fact that they have a border with Egypt. And why is nobody demanding anything from Egypt? Why? They're not the ones being attacked. Why can't they open and help their brethren 
in times of need, the way the whole of Europe are helping the Ukrainians, the way we took in 15,000 Ukrainians in Israel. And the way, they helped, they... the way they helped the Syrians, the way they helped the Syrians during the Syrians. The way they helped the Syrians. The Europe took in 4 million Syrians, which, by the way, are now causing the biggest problems with these marches. But let's put that aside for a second. Well, where is the Arab world to help the Palestinians? Why is it on us? The people who've been attacked, the people who they declare they want to exterminate, why is it on us? And, and it seems like logic, it seems like there's a blind spot in logic. And of course, what you asked me, the, the question of what, what, you know, well, how do I feel about seeing what's going on around the world? Well, quite frankly, Jake, first of all, I think we're smoking out the anti-Semites that were there all along. Yeah. We're smoking them out. They're, they're coming out with unbridled Jew hatred. And there are a lot so, of them. There's tons of them. And let me tell you, and I said this on LBC, England's got a big problem. And I'm the last person in the world. I, you know, I'm, you know me, I'm Sephardi. My mother's Moroccan. I'm one of the people to people leaders in the Abraham Accords. You can't accuse me of being Islamophobic in any way. But the, the extremist ideology, which, by the way, bothers my Muslim moderate friends more than it bothers me. Yeah. The extremist Muslim ideology is a problem. It's not marginal. It's not a little minority of people. It's, it's intoxicated large parts of the world. And you got a big problem in the UK. You got a big problem in the UK. And I think what's happening in, on, on, on Shabbat on this Saturday is disgraceful. And I don't under, you know, it's not just that, you know, Jews go to different countries. We have a vibrant diaspora. We go, we contribute, we produce, we blend in, and we respect the laws of the country. And here you have a group of essentially jihadist ideology people coming and saying, not only are we going to march and shout Jew hatred, but we're going to disrespect you on your most solemn day of your most solemn day of the year, respecting the people who fell to protect the free world. It is insult upon injury. And I don't understand how the British government is letting this happen. I don't understand. It's gone beyond freedom of speech here or freedom to demonstrate. This is blatant disrespect and spitting on the memories of those good people who died to protect the free world. Yeah. And do you think that do you think that the marches and the the, the, the rising condemnation of Israel will make a difference to re, in real terms in Israel to the conflict, to the political scene, to what Israel can do? The most important thing is to ensure that the leaders, including Rishi Sunak, who's come out unequivocally, um, you know, unequivocally understanding what evil is and understanding what good and who's on whose side, what we need to ensure that the leaders, Biden, Sunak, uh, the German leadership, et cetera, the rest of Europe, even the European Parliament, for once, that they stay on side. And they will only stay on side if the majority of the public in their countries are on side. And I think that all these marches are actually making the regular average Brit understand what we've been up against all this time. Yeah. They're not doing themselves any favors if that if that's what they wanted to achieve, because now regular people are saying, excuse me, what's you know, what why are they disrespecting our armistice day? It's yeah. it's their Yomazikaron, it's their remembrance day. 
Why yeah. are they disrespecting us? What we've done is is be tolerant and pluralistic and 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 accept everybody's values. Well, guess what? There's a good chunk of these people who don't accept your values. And yeah. That's exactly what we're dealing with right here. That's right. And last question. I've only got just a, a three or four minutes left, uh, Fleur. But um, the Israeli political crisis, which preceded this war. Um, do you think that it 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 was one of the factors that led to Hamas deciding to strike? And do you see that it has hampered the government's response and the strategic military response during the war? Just a couple of minutes, if you will. So I, I mean, I mean, the official line that we that we we're telling because we really feel this way is that there will be a price to pay for many of the leadership, but we can't deal with it right now because we're just so involved in trying to get out of this, trying to win. But I will say that the enemy's not stupid and that they obviously saw an opportune time. And I remember very clearly when I moved here during the Second Intifada, when Arafat started the Second Intifada, was when Rehud Barak had just given him the most generous offer they said that he wanted, and he didn't accept it, instead went toward the warfare and killed thousands of our people here on the streets, okay? And I remember at the time, He'd either let it slip out in an interview, although the analysis was, Arafat thought that the Israeli public were too busy getting rich with high tech and too busy having a good time and enjoying Western values that they would be lazy to fight. And just like maybe that was something that was a true analysis, then I think a true analysis now would be they saw us, they saw we were divided, and they thought the Jewish people are going to break from within this is the time to strike. And boy, were they wrong. Well, Fleur, Hassan Nahum, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And Kola Kavod and Pahaz Lacha with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much, Sheikh. You've been listening to the Israel War Briefing from the Jewish Chronicle with me, Jake Wallace-Simons. Join us next time for more insight and analysis from leading experts.